0: Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations, where we tap into university resources to examine important issues. I'm Robin Shannon. This half hour, we discuss how slavery shaped schools with Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder. This Fordham and Columbia grad is an author and a professor at MIT who grew up in Brooklyn. Good morning, Professor Wilder.
1: Thank you for having me. I can call you Craig? You can call me Craig, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, to jump right in, most stories taught in grade school or high school, especially when I was younger, painted the picture that the American North led the opposition to slavery. It was sort of like the racist South versus the progressive North. But in fact, many of the nation's leading universities had profitable connections to slavery. So what role did northern schools such as Harvard, Princeton, and even Columbia play in the slave trade?
1: I think the key is that the slave trade played a significant role in the history of those schools. If you think about higher education in North America and colonial North America, There are only three colleges in the 13 colonies in the first 140 years, really. It's Harvard, 1636, William and Mary, 1693, and Yale in 1701. And then in a 23-year period, six new colleges are established. That's the height of the African slave trade. So from the very beginning of the American college and right through the end of the colonial period, the slave trade provided the monetary resources for the rise of the American academy,
0: because you had to fund these universities in some way.
1: And they're denominational schools, right? So they're schools belonging to churches. Brown, the College of Rhode Island at the time, now Brown University, is a Baptist college. The um, King's College, now Columbia, was Anglican. The College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, was Presbyterian. These are church schools, and communities came together to help build them. And you needed, in fact, the wealthiest people in those communities to help fund these schools. That wealthiest group was heavily connected to the slave trade.
0: And that was my question yeah. about actual slavery within the organization of universities. How did slavery function in the North versus the South? Specifically, what did they do yeah. at these colleges? What were their jobs?
1: There, there are two different relationships to slavery. Right? There's One is the slave traders who are on the founding board of trustees of these schools. Um, Brown, the College of Rhode Island, had more slave traders on its board than any other school. Columbia, then King's College in Manhattan had um, more sons of slave traders and merchants than any other school. But the other relationship to slavery is literally enslaved people on campus. When Dartmouth is founded in 1769, the charter is given. The next year, the Reverend Eliezer Wheelock, the founder of Dartmouth, heads up to New Hampshire, to Hanover, with eight enslaved black people. Right? He's got seven adults and an infant child, all of, all of whom he counts as slaves. You can make an, an argument, and I think it's a perfectly fair argument, that Dartmouth has more slaves than faculty. It actually does. Has it certainly has more slaves than faculty? And the family slave holdings actually grew after that period because Wheelock's son John, who succeeds him in the presidency, marries into a fairly significant slaveholding family with ties to New Jersey and the West Indies. And so enslaved people are on campus from the very beginnings of the American college. If you know, Harvard is the first college in the British colonies, 1636 in Massachusetts. Two years later. There's a slave on campus, a man who's referred to as the Moor and who's owned by the only professor at Harvard. He's the master of the school and professor, Nathaniel Eaton. And he serves the early Harvard students and becomes part of the sort of legend of Harvard.
0: Are they still treated like we think the southern slaves are treated, or or should I say mistreated, here in the north in these universities?
1: Yes. You know, the violence undergirds slavery everywhere it, it exists. And so you know, at Harvard, you know, to use the Massachusetts example, Benjamin Wadsworth, one of the early presidents of Harvard, Reverend Wadsworth, had earlier been a pastor of one of the Boston churches, one of the major churches, in, Puritan churches in Boston. And Wadsworth actually gives a sermon to his congregation on the proper ordering of the family in which he instructs his congregation that it's their duty to beat their slaves that, in fact, it's a biblical obligation to do so. In the next, or later in the um, 18th century, a an enslaved man and woman are actually dragged to the commons in front of, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right in front of Harvard Yard, right outside the gate. The students and some of the faculty are watching as this these two people, a man and woman, are actually executed and burned to death on that spot for being accused of poisoning their master. Violence at every moment in time undergirds slavery in the North. And it's a myth that, somehow northern slavery was more genteel and more humane than slavery in other regions of the world.
0: Can you sort of provide us with an overview of the slave trade, you know, who sailed to where, why, and when? Yeah.
1: The, um, the earliest ship leaving out of the British mainland actually leaves, and it goes back to that man, the moor, who was on the Harvard campus. Mm-hmm. Harvard is founded in 1636. The very next year, a war breaks out between the Puritans and the Pequot Indians in southern Connecticut. Um, When the Pequot defeated, it's often referred to that final battle as the Pequot Massacre. The English capture hundreds of Pequot women and children. Those people are sold um, into slavery. One of the ships that takes them is a ship named the Desire, and it heads south to Bermuda and to the West Indies with Pequot captives for sale. The ship then returns to New England the next year with various commodities, including Negroes. And these are the first enslaved black people to arrive in the colony. Harvard gets its first slave that year. You know, it's not, it's not perfectly clear if the Moor, this man who was on campus, arrived in the desire. But there is some suggestive evidence that's how he got to New England. After that, the slave trade emerges and grows relatively slowly throughout the 17th century and then much more rapidly in the 18th century. Each of the colleges, in order to survive, manages to make some connection to slavery or the slave trade. Harvard begins to send ambassadors south to the southern colonies of Virginia and eventually the Carolinas, but also to Barbados and Jamaica. Why Barbados and well, Jamaica? Because There's the, money there? Yeah. The wealthiest men in the British Atlantic world are in Barbados. Well, uh, Barbados is by far the wealthiest possession that England has in the Americas. And Massachusetts sustains itself it manages to survive by sending ships to Barbados and supplying the Barbadian planters with everything they need from fish and poor quality fish to feed the enslaved. It's why cod ends up in the diet of, you know, every black person south of, you know, Pennsylvania um, and certainly in the West Indies, right? Um, the And so they send fish south. They send horses. They send tools. They send vegetables. They send the wood that's used to actually um, create the barrels for rum um, processed from West Indian sugar and, and then transported across the Atlantic by supplying the plantations in the South and the West Indies. Um, a, a rather vibrant merchant economy manages to emerge in New England. And then the next step is, if you're supplying wood and all of these other commodities, we also begin supplying slaves. We begin sending ships across the Atlantic And into the African slave trade, even when the trade is regulated by England and it's actually illegal to do it, from New York, from Boston, from Providence and Newport, Rhode Island, and from Philadelphia, illegal ventures are being launched to the African coast to bring slaves into the Americas. England had given a monopoly to the Royal African Company. Um, and so it was illegal to operate outside the monopoly, to violate the monopoly. Okay. And so, and, but we violate it, you know, quite regularly. The New Yorkers actually established quite a tradition in the illegal trade in the 17th century, sending ships as far as Madagascar to avoid the Royal African Company's, you know, sort of control of that trade and to profit off the sale of people into the Americas.
0: We didn't uh, mention your book, your latest book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. Uh, and as you said, it took you about uh, 11 years of yes. research to do this. So can you share uh, the process that you went sure. through? you have 11 years? <laughs> <laughs> can we summarize it a little bit? Sure. <laughs>
1: well, basically, when I got to Dartmouth, I had just finished my second book project. I was sort of looking for something. And I actually thought I was taking a small project on. Which Oops. was, I, I was going to write an article, I swear, I was going to write an article just explaining how black abolitionists, free black people living in the Northeastern uh, um, states in the decades before the Civil War, how they entered the profession since they couldn't go to college. They were excluded from colleges, right? So how do you become a minister, a teacher at college school number two or African school number one, or you know a doctor What's in a nation to? where you can't? Well, a lot of them apprenticed and studied privately with friendly ministers, you know, you'd you find a Presbyterian minister or bishop who was actually friendly enough to allow you to study privately for the ministry and for ordination. Some of them traveled to these sort of ephemeral schools that were opened up in New England by abolitionists, and many of them actually did their studies in places like New York and Philadelphia in poorly resourced schools that were funded by the free black community, and some went abroad. But in, in fact, actually, as I was driving around to these various towns in New England where some of these schools had lived, I became much more interested in the fact that I was teaching at Dartmouth that Native Americans had actually been on campus as students for 200 years by the 1830s and 1840s. And so the exclusion wasn't just race. Something else was happening. Um, and that's where I dropped the first part of the project, and I started pursuing what this something else was. I just wanted to know. You know um, and the answer is actually that Native Americans were brought in as students precisely because the university was an instrument of colonialism. People who um, posed, in fact, real military and strategic threats was, in fact, an effective and efficient way of changing the balance of power between the English and Native nations. So if we educate they, them with, right. uh,
0: by our means, right. by our ideals, they'll be easier for us right. to influence.
1: And this also helps to explain how co- the early colleges got into the business of this tight, close relationship to slavery and the slave trade. Because you fund those missionary endeavors by turning to sources of wealth emerging in the Atlantic world And slavery and the slave trade provide, in fact, the the most bountiful source of wealth in the Atlantic world. And so you turn to slave traders, you turn to slavery, and these early colleges, therefore, end up with a really quite intimate history, but also, in fact, these really quite tense relationships to Native American nations.
0: I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV, talking with author and professor Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder. We're discussing how slavery shaped some of our most prestigious universities. Before we get back into your research, can I ask, did Native Americans suffer the same type of violence that mm-hmm. slaves did at that time?
1: Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, in the Pequot Massacre, we're just actually we're just reading some of the documents from my Second Ameri- book. No, for my American <laughs> Classics course at uh, MIT. And so we, um, we just finished reading some of the documents from the Pequot Massacre. As a professor and, of history yeah, at MIT. And, 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 you know, you've got you know, the English surrounding a Pequot village and firing upon it in the middle of the night and then basically butchering everyone who runs out. They set fire to it, and they also fire guns on it to terrorize people. And so it is an extraordinarily bloody moment. There's also, remember, an active Indian slave trade Native people captured in the Americas, in the various colonies, are often sold into other colonies as slaves. And, you know, in the Carolinas, a a recent study has pointed out, in the Carolinas, this is how you end up getting a black majority in South Carolina. The arrivals, the European colonists, the Carolinas, arrive, in fact, quite poor. And they manage to create wealth by arming the neighboring Native nations so that those nations can then prey upon the interior nations and the weaker nations, and sell people back to the seaboard. Um, the Carolinians then take those people, those Indian slaves, sell them into the West Indies and use that money to purchase Africans. And so you create, uh, there's a there are two slave trades that actually create the Carolinas. And so, yes, enslavement is a real part of Native American history. And there's a deep, you know, and really quite frightening history of violence that undergirds much of this, yeah.
0: So now you're traveling around looking at this research for this short, simple mm-hmm. writing that you, planned on, you right. planned on doing. Where did you go and what did you have to go through to get the information for your research for your book?
1: You know, I, I think when I first started, when, when it shifted from that article to a book, when I, all of a sudden I was looking at this much bigger question right. of the relationship between these colleges, Native Americans and Africans in the colonial world, I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to find the resources. That the material just wouldn't be there to tell the story from and in fact actually that's the first thing that got corrected i realized actually pretty early that there was plenty of material in fact way too much and one of the reasons it took 11 years was that there's so much material to go through and i um i've only gotten through a fraction of it and so what happened is um i made some decisions along the way and one of them was that i didn't want to write a book that blamed one school or that was about one school and made that one school seem to be the culprit you know, if i ever had a complaint brown university did a report on its relationship to slavery and the slave trade that was published in 2006 a fantastic internal institutional investigation made public by the university itself under Ruth Simmons the first woman of color first woman and per- first person of color to head an ivy league institution and if i ever had a complaint about the brown report my only complaint is that it made brown seem unusual and i didn't want to do that i didn't want to write a book about harvard and slavery and then just say, well, you know, Princeton was kind of similar here and Columbia was kind of... And so the other thing that took a while was I really needed, therefore, to visit all of these campuses. And because we're talking about the colonial period, the story and the documents and the research isn't just in the Americas. A lot of it is also in Europe. And so I spent a lot of time in England at the National Archives in England, at the British Library in England, at some various smaller collections the Hunterian library which is an anatomy museum uh, up in Scotland doing research there in the in the medical schools and in the universities that influence the ones that actually get established in the in North America and so it just took you know a lot of all my vacations involved were actually defined by their proximity to some research center library or archive
0: so, Professor Wilder, what did you do? You went, and knock, 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 hi, let me go into your archives and yeah. find out what your university's connection yeah. to slavery is. Yeah, what
1: well, you don't want me to know. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: w- Hello. Were, I would think that there would be some kind of conflict that would happen or some kind of resistance. Did you face anything like that?
1: No, I worried about it. The people in the audience who've been to archives before know that you have to fill out, in most archives, you fill out a form sort of saying who you are, and getting permission to use the collection, there are rules attached to it that tell you how to behave and what you you can't have pens, you can't have pencils, all these rules, right? And then they always have this line on there that asks you, "What are you? What's your research topic?" And so I would write somewhat euphemistically, <laughs> you know, the. Well, <laughs> colonial education, which is true. Right? Yeah. A little vague. <laughs> yeah, a little vague, nice and broad. Colonial colleges, <laughs> colonial education, just very broad. Right. Um, but what I found out, actually, as I was sitting in these archives, you know, at William & Mary, you know, I, I went to their library multiple times, and as I sort of got uh, sat there doing research, and the, the archivist got to a sense of what I was working on by what I was asking for. In fact, actually, they would bring me other stuff that they knew about so they in the collection. With you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, they were really really wonderfully helpful. They kind of figured out what I was working on. They would ask me some questions about, you know, where's your project going and we, and and they would just bring me stuff that they knew about that I might not have gotten to using the regular index system because of the way things are indexed. And so really actually I didn't find a lot of resistance at all in among the archivists and librarians. There were a lot of support, but there's a good reason for that actually. Why? The archivists and the librarians are part of the population of people on these campuses who's been keeping this history alive, even at a time when the university administrations didn't want to talk about it and touch the topic. um, It's been a grassroots movement on these campuses. It's been faculty and students doing courses on Harvard and slavery that produced the website Harvard and Slavery, right? That comes out of a seminar that one faculty member did and that, you know, a, a generation of students did who took that class. On the Williams campus, Shanti Singham, who's a professor of history, teaches a course on Williams and slavery. And at Princeton, Martha Sanwise is teaching a course on Princeton and slavery. And so it's been faculty members and students who've kept this conversation going over the past decade, often with no institutional support or encouragement whatsoever, because no one really at the top wanted them to touch this topic. But where they really get a lot of support and help is from the archivists and the librarians. And so the archivists and the librarians were already involved in this conversation. And so by the time I showed up, you know, over the past 10 years, not only were they ready for this discussion, they were actually in many ways excited about it. They recognized that there was a story to be told and that the fear of telling it was irrational.
0: So, uh, Dr. Wilder, I would think that there would be possibly accusations of a political agenda mm-hmm. when you started uh, writing this. Did you face that from?
1: No, not not when I started. When I finished, right? Okay. It's actually <laughs> when you published the book. The people, well, you, you have a political agenda, right? I, I'm not quite sure what that means. That you have a political agenda. You know, I mean, it seems to accuse. You me. want to make us
0: look bad. Yeah. Well, it
1: accuses you of having. You're trying a, to stir yeah, the pot. That's right. It accuses <laughs> you of having a mind you know the <laughs> How <dare> um, you. <laughs> right? yeah but you know, i was on a different radio show someone had called in and said you know why are you digging up this past and my response to it, you know, i'm a historian yeah you know, that's our job right. actually we that's what we get paid to dig up the past like that's not a complaint that we hear you know when we publish a book about abraham lincoln we don't hear the complaint why are you digging up this past we only hear that complaint upon the approach of uncomfortable facts And I actually have a lot of sympathy for that. I actually, you know, I have no antagonism to people who are bothered by this past, troubled by it, and shaken by it. My response to them is actually that they, what they need to understand is that I'm having the same reaction they are. I I recognize how uncomfortable these truths are. I recognize how uncomfortable these facts are. I still think as an academic, as a scholar, as a teacher, we have an obligation to confront the truth with a kind of brutal honesty. But, you know, it, I'm not writing to attack them. I love universities, but I think we have an obligation to be as honest about the history of universities as we are about the history of other institutions. And if we can write about Thomas Jefferson in slavery, then there's absolutely no reason why we can't write about Harvard and slavery.
0: Why do you think the topic of slavery is still such a touchy
1: topic? Well, I think because, you know, once you get beyond the facts, once you get beyond the story and the truths, you run into the far touchier problem of the politics of the meaning of it all. Right? What do we do about it you know, once, we, once we know? And I think that's where most of the real tension comes. It comes in anticipating you know, the, the political consequences of revealing certain kinds of historical truths. Is there going to be a conversation about reparations? Is it going to require, in fact, a conversation about some sort of compensatory justice or a way of action? And and I think that's where a lot of the tension builds. Um, And so I think it's actually in anticipation of something later that a lot of this resistance to certain aspects of the history of slavery emerge.
0: Professor Wilder, did you come across anything that surprised you during your research?
1: or just angered you about your research? (laughs) Yeah, there are things that actually shocked me and surprised me. And angered, I think, no. I think that's a useful emotion. You know, it's a natural emotion to be angry at this past. It's a natural emotion to be uncomfortable with it. As a scholar, one of the things I think my obligation is, both to myself, to my students, and to the audience, is to remind us that that's just the first reaction. Right. That anger is a reaction. It's a useful reaction. It's actually a you know natural reaction. But it needs to then be channeled into something more productive, which is a critical understanding of that and what it means for us today. And I think we're quite capable of having those conversations. And so there were things that shocked and horrified me along the way. You know, I think you you discover some just brutally and, and, and ghoulish facts. You know, the Harvard Hall burns. In 1763, there's a fire and it burns to the ground, and in the inventory of what was lost, among the collection in the early museum that was in Harvard Hall, is the hide of a Negro, the skin of a black person that's been tanned and preserved for display and for study. There are grotesque and horrifying things that you encounter along the way, and my job as a historian is not to hide that, but to explain it, to get readers to understand how it happened and why it happened and what the consequences of that are. And so, yeah, there were things that sort of horrified me and surprised me, but that's history. You know, honestly, I think that you know part of the obligation of a historian is not to tell a story that leaves us all feeling comfortable. It's actually to tell a truer and more complete version of the past, which means, in fact, disrupting some of the things that we prefer to believe about ourselves and about our institutions.
0: And maybe leaving the results up to the individual to sort of decide how they want to use it. Mm-hmm. Craig, you received one of your degrees from Fordham University. Do you know if Fordham has any connection at all to slavery?
1: I don't. I I don't you know I haven't mean, been in the I, archives here for a No, Fordham, no, huh? what I what I did is, you know, just about every school I've ever, you know, um touched is in the book. Um so you know, my being near your school was kinda of bad news. Uh, for several years. But the um, no, well, what happened is with Catholic universities, they, they do show up in the book. Um, they show up in the early period because the very first universities in the Americas are Catholic. Therefore, the Catholic part of the story be, is at the very beginning of the book, where I try to point out that it's not just the English. You know, it's New France, Eastern Canada. You know, if you go to Quebec City right now, the old seminary is right there. It dates back to the middle of the 17th century, the 1600s and established by French priests, with one of the goals of the seminary being to train Native American boys and to send them back to nations like the Huron as ambassadors of the Catholic faith. Part of the reason why Fordham isn't in the book is that Fordham is established about 13 years after really the book really ends. I end the book in the 1830s. And part of the reason I end it there is I, I make an argument at the end of the book that the heyday of the American college, the The moment when the American college actually becomes the universities that we recognize today is in the 1830s. Why? And it's largely the rise of race and racial science over which universities can claim academic expertise, which allows the universities to break free of their connection to the churches and no longer be sort of subservient to churches. Did
0: you say race science? Race science. What is race science? Race
1: science is, you know, the emerging science from really the middle of the 18th century to the um, 19th century uh, of race, of the study of race and the attempt to prove that human beings actually occupied discrete racial groups with biologically fixed characteristics. As that scientific tradition emerges and emerges on campus, it gives academics a new entry into the public sphere. And in the 1830s, really I think, I I argue, for the first time in the history of North America, university faculty and presidents are actually operating in the public sphere as experts on race and public policy, um, using this sort of academic claim to expertise over race. And no longer, for instance, you know, the, uh, in the book I point out that Jeremiah Day, who the Reverend Jeremiah Day, is the president of Yale in the 1830s. He's also the vice president of the American Colonization Society, which is a society organized a couple of decades earlier to remove free black people from continental North America to some place outside of the United States borders. Right? They, eventually they established Liberia, and um, the goal is to colonize them, the free black population, to remove them all. Day is actually a, a vice president of the American Colonization Society, but when he's standing in the society, his claim to expertise is now actually not that he's a minister, but that he's a university president. A generation earlier, when university presidents entered into the public sphere, they entered in as ministers. You know, and so Jonathan Witherspoon is the president of Princeton, the College of New Jersey. And during the American Revolution, he's a major revolutionary figure. But he's standing as the leader of Presbyterians. His status as the president of the College of New Jersey is of minor importance. By the 1830s, actually, it's the academic credentials that start to matter. And what's now making those academic credentials matter is that race and science are coming to trump theology in the public discourse over the future of the United States, the very vision of what a citizen of the United States can be.
0: So they found a new tool to use to uh, solicit Funds for the colleges. Right. Can you share your, your your ideas, your thoughts about reparations?
1: I think it's a conversation we need to have. I, you know, I think it's a difficult one. Agree, disagree. Pretend. It's not that simple. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not as simple as we like to pretend. But I'm in favor of compensatory justice. I actually think that, you know, universities have an obligation to explore their histories, as do other institutions in American society. And, and so I think this is a conversation that we need to have. We're capable of having it. But when we have it, it needs to be a fair fight. It needs to be a fight about the facts and about what happened and about how you deal with that past. And honest, decent people can disagree, but the decision shouldn't be made based simply on the maldistribution of power, which is, in fact, the very energy beneath the call for reparations, right? So we can't use the very maldistribution of power that results from the the injuries created as a way of deciding whether or not some kind of compensatory justice is appropriate. I don't think it's the only conversation we need to be having, though. And so I also have a fear of this discussion or concern about this discussion because it can often actually sort of mute other conversations that we need to be having. You know, I'm I'm concerned about what we did this morning you know, as much as I am about what we did 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 300 years ago, I'm concerned that we woke up this morning and sent millions of low-income kids to unequal and segregated schools across the United States, that we're reproducing the inequalities of my generation for new generations of kids. We know that we're doing it. We're actually doing it by policy and by decision, and there's very little national will to engage with that crisis. I'm concerned about, you know, the incarceration of young men and women um, whose lives and whose families' lives are being distorted. you know. And so I think there are lots of conversations that we need to be having, but you know, really, in fact, the transformation of the lives of low-income people requires a much more complicated social movement than any one single thread of that movement. Does that make sense? That totally I don't want- makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that totally makes sense. My thanks to Dr. Craig Stephen Wilder. His latest book is Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. It's out now on Bloomsbury Press. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.